Last week, we, we started a study on the book of Acts, and we're going to continue that tonight. Again, I've already mentioned, don't get depressed or worried. I know there are 28 chapters in the book of Acts, and we've done one. Tonight, we're going to do two. Okay? Now, some of them will, will connect, and we'll, we, but we're going to take our time, and if something comes up, we'll do that. And, but we're just going to go through, uh, as Pentecostals especially, we are the world's worst at only doing topical Preaching. And what I mean by that is we talk about grace, we talk about holiness, we talk about the Holy Ghost, we talk about God's love, we talk about the oneness of God. But sometimes, we, uh, many times, we don't slow down and just go verse by verse. And so that's what I'm attempting to do this year specifically is some of these books. Because there's a reason that the Word of God is written like it's written. Okay? The Bible says that all Scripture, everybody say all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. Another translation says it like this, that all Scripture is God-breathed. Okay? It originates with God Himself and it is profitable for us. Now here's what a lot of times happens. We go to Acts 2.38, preach Acts 2.38, get excited, and well we should get excited about Acts 2.38, and we leave the other 41 verses alone. Okay, so tonight, uh, 46 verses. Pappy will correct me if I miss that. 46 verses. <sighs> we leave the other verses alone. We don't realize what they mean in the context. And, and so I want to help us get a better grasp of Scripture. Most of this you've already heard, at least bits and pieces. I just want to take our time. Amen. I want to talk to you about the book of Acts 2.0. I call it the book of Acts 2.0 because we want to be an apostolic Pentecostal church. We want to be founded on the teachings of the apostles. And we want to experience what the apostles did on the day of Pentecost. The Pentecostal new birth experience. We want to be apostolic not just in our doctrine but also in our demonstration. We want God to move. Well the best way to learn that is to go see what God did in the first century church. The book of Acts is the prototype of what the church is supposed to look like. Amen. It's the church. It's the body of Christ in action. In chapter 1, and I won't do this for every chapter because of all the, the stuff in it, but I want to try to highlight this very quickly. In the book of Acts chapter 1, we see some foundation laid. And, and, and as I studied this, I realized it's the mantra, it's the motto, it's the theme for the rest of the book of Acts. Jesus told his disciples, go, go to the Jerusalem, you're going to get the promise, you're going to be filled with the Holy Ghost. To which they replied, they questioned, does this mean that you're going to restore the kingdom of Israel again? Now what they're asking is... Are we going to be an independent nation once more? Are we going to be out, rebel from Roman rule? Are we going to be our own nation and self-govern? And Jesus is trying to get them to understand that's not in your department. It's not for you to know the times or the seasons that's been placed in God's power. But then he turns around and says, but you're going to have power. And that power is going to equip you to be a witness unto me. And then Jesus, as he says that, is taken up into heaven. The disciples look on and they watch what's happening. And two angels stand by them and say, guess what? I know you see him, but don't be downtrodden. Don't be upset. Jesus is coming back. And we see very quickly the mantra, the foundation of the church. It's simply this. We're not to worry about what we cannot control. Because we have been given power to be a witness of the cross. And all of it is, is worth doing because at the end of the day, Jesus is coming back. That's why the disciples could do and say what they did and said with authority and boldness. Because they understood, hey, I'm not worried. I've got power. 
I'm a witness and Jesus is coming back. I'm not worried. I've got power. I've been made a witness and Jesus is coming back. So here we are at the end of the chapter 1 of the book of Acts and we find that they have been in the upper room for approximately 8 to 10 days. We're not 100% sure. I'd have to do the math again. And again, Pappy and I have argued what that really means. But uh, as far as the time frame, he'll probably correct me on on the time frame. But we'll argue about that when y'all aren't here. (laughs) But the Bible says in Acts 2 that when the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. Now this verse, when you see the word Pentecost, this is not a denomination. Okay? The day of Pentecost is a Jewish feast. Okay? It is a series, it is the third in a series of three Jewish feasts. Everybody's heard of the Passover, right? The Passover was celebrated, we know it as the Last Supper. Jesus breaks bread, says, take, eat, this is my body, drink of the cup. This is my blood which is shed for you, this do in remembrance of me. We've heard that. Okay? The next Sabbath, or the next day after that, was the Feast of First Fruits. This kicked off the, uh, the harvest season. Okay, And then 50 days, 50 days removed from the Feast of First Fruits was the Feast of Pentecost, or the Feast of Harvest. Okay, It marked the end of the harvest season. So what we're reading here, if we're, a, if we're an Orthodox Jew, we understand what's happening. We're, we're seeing here the time frame. Jesus dies on the Passover. He, he, he rises again on, on the, uh, the day after the Sabbath or the, during the Feast of First Fruits. And now when the day of harvest, the Feast of Harvest has fully come, they are getting ready to celebrate. Jews from all over the world are there. That's when God pours out His Spirit on humanity. We've had the sacrificial lamb slain. Jesus is the lamb slain at the day of at the at the, at the feast of Passover. I'll get it out here in a minute. It is his resurrection that reminds us that there is a harvest coming. And now, now that all of that is said and done, now he's getting ready to harvest some souls, pour out his spirit. But notice, it didn't happen on a whim. And we mentioned it a little bit in chapter one. It says they were all with one accord in one place. I'm stressing those words. That's not a play on words. I need you to understand. Most people quote it in one accord, in one place. And that's not right. Because the only way you can be in an accord is if it's a car. That's true. The only way for us to be in one accord is to be in a car. Now what do I mean by that? The phrase with one accord literally means, or to be in one accord would mean that we have the same mind. Now, I'm going to tell you a little secret. I didn't have to learn this at the marriage seminar. I learned this within two weeks of being married. That me and my wife don't always have the same ideas. Just ask, hey babe, where do you want to go eat tonight? I don't know. You pick. To which I respond, let's go to Chick-fil-A. Oh, I don't want Chick-fil-A. I thought you said it didn't matter. Now, I'm picking on her, but, and we're giggling. But that's, what, that's what's really... If we were in one accord, I would say Chick-fil-A, and she'd say, that's what I was thinking. Now, I tell you that because, again, I don't want to bust anybody's theology or hurt anybody's feelings, but I'm going to tell you a little secret. Not everybody in the church is always in agreement. We don't always agree on every single detail. 
we don't always have the same exact idea. Okay? You don't believe me? Let's vote on to paint the walls. Some of you want it the same color. Some of you want it a lighter shade. Some of you want a gray. Some of you want white. Some of you want bright red with polka dots. Nobody's going to agree. Okay? But that doesn't mean we can't be with one accord. The phrase with one accord literally means that we have the same shared mission. They said, we don't know exactly what this promise is. We don't know exactly how it's going to happen. But we have got the same mission. We're going to come. We're going to gather. We're going to pray. And God is going to show up. Now, here's the cool thing about that. We come to the house of God with one accord. That means, I don't know how it's going to happen. I don't know what song's going to be sung or what illustration pastor's going to use. But I can tell you one thing. I'm believing that God's going to move. He's going to heal. He's going to deliver. He's going to, de- he's going to destroy the yokes of bondage. He's going to break addiction. He's going to put marriages back together. I've come with the purpose that God is going to work. I'm going to come with one accord in one place. Amen. We can be in the same place with one accord. We don't have to be identical. I'll go ahead and say it. If you're always in agreement with your neighbor and you never have any, any uh, differences of opinions, one of you is not necessary. But that's the spice of life. God gave us variety so that each one of us can reach a unique field of people with the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's the mission that matters. Amen? Amen. Well, glory. And suddenly, the Bible says, there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled all the house where they were sitting. And there appeared unto them cloven tongues like as a fire, and it sat upon each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Ghost, and began to speak with other tongues, as the Spirit gave the utterance. Ladies and gentlemen, I give you the birth of the church. It is in this moment, and there's so much symbolism, and guys, those... These three verses right here, I could spend probably two weeks on. Everybody take a breath. I'm not. Okay? I'm not going to. But I want to show you a couple of things very quickly here. God is reconciling humanity to Himself. Okay? What has happened over the last 50 days, the Lamb has been slain at Passover. Okay? The lamb, the sacrificial lamb has been slain. The blood has been applied. Now the Holy Ghost, the Spirit of God is being poured out on humanity. And the very, uh, there is a wind, there is a dramatic experience. But the, one of the very first signs that is given is are tongues of fire. In other words, imagine, if you will, a, a flame of fire setting upon each person as they begin to experience the Holy Ghost. Now, why does that matter? Because we're talking to Orthodox Jews in Jerusalem on one of the most celebrated days of, Jewish, of the Jewish calendar. And when this takes place, they immediately know what's happening. Is everybody with me so far? They immediately know what's taking place. What's happening is... The sacrificial lamb is slain. The blood has been applied. And and the Lord is showing reconciliation. It's the same exact thing that happens. The high priest would take the lamb. They would slay it at the altar. They would take the blood. The priest would walk through. This is a condensed version. But he walks through the holy place. He takes of the shoe bread. He passes by the candle. He goes by the altar of incense. And he walks into the holy of holies. Where the ark of the covenant is, is, is dwelling. 
He then takes the blood of the altar. He applies it to the, the Ark of the Covenant. And when he applies it to the mercy seat, the Bible tells us and Jewish scholars tell us that the fire of God would fall on the mercy seat. When the fire fell on the mercy seat, the high priest could walk out of God's presence knowing that my people have been reconciled again. We've been brought back into covenant with God. It doesn't matter what we've done, what sins have been committed, what issues have happened. We are able to walk now into the presence of Almighty God. The difference now is the veil has been torn. The Ark of the Covenant has been rendered obsolete because Jesus is that covenant. He is both Lamb and High Priest. He walks boldly into heaven and the blood is applied. Listen to me, folks. What the flame of fire is happening in the first four verses of Acts chapter 2, it is a telltale sign that God is accepting of man. A holy God looks at sinful man and says... I like you. Holy God looks at sinful man and says, it doesn't matter what you've done or how bad you've been. Now, you've got to remember, some of these cats are messed up. You've got to remember, Peter is messed up. James and John have issues. Uh, uh, Thaddeus was a, was a, was a terrorist. Uh, the Bible calls him a zealot, but he was a terrorist. You've got Matthew, who's a, a, a Jewish outcast. He's a tax collector. He's an accountant for the IRS, Roman style. He's, they've got problems, they've got issues, they've got histories, and they've, got, they, they, they've been through all kinds of stuff. But yet when the fire of God falls, when the Spirit of God falls, the fire is indicative that, hey, they've been reconciled. Do you remember Mary Magdalene? She's in this group. Mary Magdalene that had multiple devils that was a prostitute. That Mary Magdalene, she's speaking in tongues and the, the fire of God is over her. Do you understand what happens when we receive the Holy Ghost? When the Spirit of God comes to live in us, God is reconciling us to Himself. Now that's a theological phrase, but what that literally means is, He's saying, you're accepted with me. You, I found you acceptable. I know you're messed up. I know you, 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 you've made mistakes. I understand that you're not holy, but I'll make you holy and I'll reconcile you to me. If that don't get you excited, I'm sorry. There's nothing else I can say. I'm thankful that God looked at me and said, you know what? I know he's got problems and I know he's, he's messed up and he's made mistakes. But I'm still going to put my spirit in him. And I'm still going to bless him. And I'm still going to fill him with the Holy Ghost. Amen. On the very first day, outside of wind and outside of fire, the Bible says that they were filled with the Holy Ghost and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. This is an absolute necessity to understand. This is the first time that men are filled with the Holy Ghost in the book of Acts. When they are filled, the law of first mention, it was a principle of study in Scripture, tells us that the first time a principle is mentioned, you've got to pay attention to it. So when the first time the Spirit of God, after, the, resur after the, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, the first time the Spirit of God, the Holy Ghost, is poured out on somebody, they spoke in other tongues. They spoke in a language they did not know. Folks, it is imperative. And I'll go through Scripture for the rest of the, the next few weeks talking about it. And we'll show you multiple places. But we need, when we speak in tongues, it's not just a warm, fuzzy feeling. It doesn't just make you cry or jump or laugh or, or feel good about yourself. Although you can do all of those things. The truth of the matter is, you know you've got the Holy Ghost because you speak in a language you've never learned. Isaiah prophesied this in Isaiah 28 verses 11 and 12. He said, for with stammering lips and another 
tongue will I speak to this people. This is the rest wherein the weary shall find rest. Amen. I'm thankful to have the Holy Ghost tonight. Amen. 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 Notice what takes place. They're filled with the Holy Ghost. They're having a good old time. The Bible says, And there were dwelling at Jerusalem Jews, devout men, out of every nation under heaven. And now when this was noised abroad, the multitude came together and were confounded because that every man heard them speak in his own language. They were all amazed and marveled, saying one to another, Behold, are not all these which speak Galileans? And how hear we every man in our own tongue wherein we were born? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and the dwellers in Mesopotamia, in Judea and Cappadocia, in Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia in Egypt and in the parts of Libya about Cyrene, strangers of Rome, Jews and proselytes. Cretes and Arabians, we do hear them speak in our tongues the wonderful works of God. And they were all amazed and were in doubt, saying one to another, What meaneth this? So when everything is happening, the day of Pentecost is fully come, 120 believers are filled with the Holy Ghost. There's a wind, there's a fire, they're speaking in tongues. There's a move of the Spirit. The multitude being gathered together for the Feast of Pentecost. It's a, it's a busy day in Jerusalem. They're passing on the street. Maybe this spilled out into the street. I don't know. But they're passing by and they're going, what is going on? They recognize these guys. They recognize their mannerisms and their dress and their, their, their dialect. They, 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 they recognize their, their accents, if you will. And they recognize that these guys are Galileans. These disciples are predominantly from an area called Galilee. This is where Nazareth and Capernaum and all these places are. And, and, and they recognize that by saying that, what they're declaring is, these are not traveled people. Not being ugly, but these are not educated men. Okay? The women, uh, again, not trying to be ugly, but the women here are very uneducated. What little education the men got, the ladies didn't even get that. They're just, can I just say it like this? They're just good old folks. Which raises a question to the onlookers. How does that dude know how to speak Latin? How does she... Able to speak fluent Greek. They start questioning. Wait a minute. I know these languages. I grew up in, I grew up in Egypt. Huh. My next door neighbor was a Parthian. We spoke all that. He taught me some things. I, I know what she's saying. She's speaking uh, the, the language of the Parthians. And, and, and they start asking these questions. What is, what, what's happening here is the Holy Ghost. The Spirit of God is moving. It's giving them the ability as they're worshiping God to, get, to speak in languages they've never learned as a sign to the multitude. Folks, this is absolutely normal. This is absolutely normal. Brother Adam and Sister Carissa King, this weekend, we were talking. I don't remember what brought it up, but we got to talking. And, and Brother, Brother King was telling me that he grew up in the church there, in, uh, the Rock Church there in Sacramento, California. He said, I remember, we were talking about, I think we were talking about preachers and, 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 and favorite preachers and different things. And he said, I remember when so-and-so came to our church. He said, we were running about 200 at the time, 250 at the time. And in six months, we went from 250 to 650. Talk about revival. He said, I remember that revival. One, one of the things that I remember the most, he said, our women's prayer meeting during the day would many times be the biggest service of the week. 
He said, because it wasn't just the women. He said, the Holy Ghost start moving and people would come from work. They'd hear things were happening at the church. Men, women, boys, girls, it didn't matter. They would come to the house of God and they'd pray midweek prayer. He says, he told me, he said, we had a guy that came to one of those prayer meetings. He just walked in. He was an oriental man that the only reason he was, that he had come to the States to start a new life and to make something of himself, he had escaped from, uh, from communism, communistic China, and he had come to the States to try to start over. He had literally been smuggled out of China into the United States. In the process of all of this, he had incurred a lot of debt. And the guys that were, he was indebted to were, were kind of, I guess a better, a good term would be like the Chinese mafia, okay? They had smuggled him in illegally. They, he was indebted to them. And, and he was literally scared for his life. He didn't know anybody in the States. He didn't know where to go, what to do. And on a random midweek prayer meeting during the day, he stumbled into the Rock Church at Sacramento, California. And, said, and, and, and didn't know exactly why he was there. Just sat down. The Holy Ghost started moving. And Sister Wilson, the, the bishop's wife, uh, there now, they were, they, when they were the pastor at this time, Sister Wilson, the Holy Ghost fell and she began to speak in other tongues. Nobody, they just thought Sister Wilson's getting an incredible blessing. Well, praise God, that's awesome. She's just feeling the Holy Ghost. That's wonderful, my goodness. And said, this man, this oriental man spun around Eyes wide open and just watched what she was doing. And later, he came up to Sister Wilson, Pastor Wilson, and, and said in very broken English, he tried to communicate with them and basically asked them, how do you know perfect Mandarin? How do you know how to speak the language? And she says, I don't. He said, ma'am, I don't know what you're trying to pull, but you were telling me, don't worry, God's got this. He's got a plan for your life. And, and that man is still an apost- in the apostolic church, the rock church in Sacramento, California today. It was a sign. Hey, the Holy Ghost is moving. The Holy Ghost is working. I'm here to tell you, folks, it still happens today. God Moves on his people. And speaking in tongues is not something to be scared of. It's not something to be ashamed of. It's the Holy Ghost. Woo! Glory. Amen. Amen. God is working. This was a tangible sign of what was taking place. And they were all amazed. What's happening? How is this possible? We don't understand this. And then there's always some critics in the crowd. And they responded, oh, you think this is cool. These mockings said, these men are just full of new wine. He said, these guys got to laughing and cutting up and poking, pointing fingers and saying, you know, these these fanatics have lost their mind. They're just, they must be intoxicated. They've been having a little bit too much. They've been celebrating the Feast of Pentecost a little too early. And they start making fun. And that's when the Apostle Peter stands to his feet. The Bible says, Peter standing up with the eleven lifted up his voice and said unto them, Ye men of Judea and all ye that dwell at Jerusalem, be this known unto you and hearken to my words. These are not drunken as ye suppose, seeing it is but the third hour of the day, about nine o'clock in the morning. I know it's early, but they're not drunk. Okay? But this is that which was spoken By the prophet Joel. Peter pulls Old Testament prophecy to explain what's happening. I'm going to read to you what he says from the book of Joel chapter 2. He says, 
And it shall come to pass in the last days, saith God, I will pour out of my spirit upon all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions. Your old men shall dream dreams. On my servants and on my handmaidens, I will pour out in those days of my spirit, and they shall prophesy. I will show wonders in heaven above and signs in the earth beneath, blood, fire, and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness, the moon into blood, before that great and notable day of the Lord come. And it shall come to pass that whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Peter quotes from Joel chapter 2 and says, you want to know what this is? This is what God promised his people in Joel. This is what God promised us. What is Joel all about? What is, what is If you study chapters 1 and 2 of the book of Joel, it's about reconciliation. It's about renewal. It's about growth. It's about replenishing. It's about revival. Okay, You start studying the book of Joel and you'll realize Israel was messed up. Israel was destitute. Israel was lost. And the Bible says, Joel writes, that that's not going to be always the case. The Holy Ghost, the Spirit of God is going to move. And He's going to work. And He's going to show Himself mighty. Peter is talking about that in a spiritual sense. Hey, just like we were messed up in Joel, guess what? We've been lost spiritually. But God has shown up and the Spirit of God is going to work. Isn't it wonderful? God is not caught by surprise. He's not, he's not scratching his head wondering how to work everything out. He knew all the way back to the prophet Joel what he was going to do and beyond. Amen. Amen. This is where Peter starts preaching. Now I want to point something out. Peter doesn't preach Acts 2.38 in the book of Acts chapter 2. We'll get to it. But his sermon is not Acts 2.38. Okay. He says, what you're hearing is from the book of Joel. It's the prophecy that Joel talked about. And then he starts preaching. Ye men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man approved of God among you by miracles and wonders and signs, which God did by him in the midst of you, as ye yourselves know, him being delivered by the determinate counsel and for knowledge of God, ye have taken and by wicked hands have crucified and slain. He's not winning friends and influencing people. He looks at these men gathered here today who have been in Jerusalem now. They've seen the Passover. They've, they've celebrated the Feast of First Fruits. Now they're celebrating the Feast of Pentecost. They've been around. They know what's happened over the last 50 days in Jerusalem and the tumultuous uproars that have happened. They've been there. They've seen that. He looks at them, points a finger at them and says, You killed him! Jesus of Nazareth. You thought he was just a carpenter. You just thought he was a rabbi. You thought he was a religious fanatic. But that Jesus, who we know to be more than just a carpenter, because God did so many things by him. Now again, what's he saying? He's not just saying he's a miracle worker. He's saying, you know what? The same, and again, this is a Jewish audience. They're hearing what he's saying even deeper than what we're hearing. He's saying... That the prophecies of the Messiah that talk about the lame walking, the leper being healed, the blind seeing, and all of those things that Ezekiel and Isaiah and these guys talk about, Jesus did it. He's the Messiah. And you've delivered him up to be slain. But don't stop there. Peter says, Whom God hath raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be holden of it. He said, it's not, you got to understand, I know you did wrong. I know you think you're, you made a mistake. But listen, it's not possible. It was not possible for him to stay in that grave. 
God has raised him from the dead. He's talking spirit has raised flesh from the dead. And he says, he explains, David speaketh concerning him. I foresaw the Lord always before my face. He is on my right hand that I should not be moved. Therefore did my heart rejoice and my tongue was glad. Moreover also my flesh shall rest in hope. Because thou wilt not leave my soul in hell. Neither wilt thou suffer thine holy one to see corruption. Thou hast made me made known to me the ways of life. Thou shalt make me full of joy with thy countenance. David again pulls Old Testament scripture. Psalm chapter 16. He's pulling from Psalm chapter 16. And he says, guess what? This is what David talked about. David talked about the Messiah being in, 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 in the grave. David talked about the Messiah being killed. But David also talked about the Messiah being raised from the dead. Okay, So he's pulling all of this together. And the, again, these are Orthodox Jews. They're taking it in. They're realizing, wait a minute. The scripture is lining up. I get it. I understand it. And so and Peter continues to preach. He says, men and brethren, let me freely speak unto you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried, and his sepulcher is with us unto this day. He's dead. He's buried. We know it. We, we, we give him honor every year. Therefore, being a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that of the fruit of his loins, according to the flesh, he would raise up Christ to sit on his throne. He, seeing this before, spake of the resurrection of Christ, that his soul was not left in hell, neither his flesh did see corruption. Again, what's he talking about? He's explaining what he just quoted from Psalm 16. God's going to raise it. God's going to take care of it. God's going to, God is going to move in a mighty way and we're going to see a miracle here. To which Peter explains, this Jesus hath God raised up, whereof we are all witnesses. What just happened? They just went back to the motto. They just went back to chapter 1. We're not going to worry. We're going to get power. We're going to be witnesses because Jesus is coming back. They just went back. We're witnesses. We've seen it. We know. We, we've been there, done that. We saw what happened. We know it to be true. We're not just talking through our hat. We're not just talking about a, something that we've heard of. We've seen this happen. We are witnesses of this. And then he keeps going. Okay? <clears throat> Excuse me. Therefore, being by the right hand of God exalted and having received of the Father the promise of the Holy Ghost, he hath shed for this which ye now see and hear. What's he doing again? He's pulling what Jesus taught. He's pulling the identity of Jesus. He's pulling the prophecy of Joel and the prophecy of David all together and said, what you're seeing here is the fulfillment of the Messiah being crucified, buried, and, and raised again from the dead. He's now pouring his spirit on humanity. Okay? For David, he says, is not ascended into the heavens, but he saith himself, The Lord said unto my Lord, Set thou on my right hand, until I make thy foes thy footstool. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God hath made that same Jesus, whom ye crucified, both Lord and Christ. We think Acts 2.38 is the crux of the message. I'm not so sure we miss it. I'm not so sure this verse is not the crux. Of the message. Because David's or Paul Peter has pulled all this prophecy from Joel, from David. He's taught, he, he's identified Jesus, he's pulled it all together. And he declares to a Jewish audience, You've heard my scriptures, you've heard my argument. Let everybody here today know assuredly, and he directs it specifically to the nation of the house of Israel. Let every Jew know without a doubt in their mind. That the God of the Old Testament, this, this, this idea of God here, he's referring to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of the Old Testament, who they readily identify as the God Jehovah they serve. That the God 
of our fathers knoweth surely that God hath made this Jesus, this man that you crucified, this man that you look at and think he's just a fanatic or he's just a carpenter or he's just a cool rabbi, this Jesus, the God of the Old Testament, has made him Lord and Christ. Lord and Christ. These terms are not... In fact, if you would read this in the Greek, you would see the terms Adonai and you would see Christos. Okay? Adonai literally means uh, Lord or Master. but it It is the name that every Jewish person used to describe God in the New Testament. Okay? In fact... They were forbidden to speak Yahweh, the name Yahweh. That was the name Jehovah that that they would read. They were forbidden to speak that. When they would read their scriptures in the synagogue, history tells us that they would read and they would come to the writing of of Yahweh or the name of God. And they would simply say, the the reader would say, Adonai. So if he was reading reading the uh, Shema, Deuteronomy 6.4, he would say, Shema Israel. Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Ehad. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. But the people who are sitting around listening to the scriptures being read, they knew that wasn't the literal name of God. That was just the title they used in reverence of God. So they would say, here, Shema Israel, Adonai, to which the people would respond back, Hashem, which literally translates the name. They knew it was there, but they wouldn't say it. Okay? Now Peter, this fisherman from Galilee, stands up and says, Jesus is Adonai. Hashem, the name. You you, you with me? They catch it. They immediately know. Wait a minute. This Jesus is the God of the Old Testament. And he says, has made him both Adonai and Christos. Or Christ. That's not a last name. What he's saying is he's made him both God of the Old Testament... And Messiah, literally the anointed body of God. So the invisible God that Abraham couldn't see. What Peter's declaring is now he's made visible. And we did see him. I'm sorry, you're not supposed to get excited on Wednesday night Bible study. But when you start thinking about it, when you start looking at it, he declares to this multitude that Jesus, he's not a carpenter. He is Adonai of the Old Testament and he's Christ of the New Testament. He is the visible God made manifest. In him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. And Peter at that moment goes, music come. Okay, that may not be in your King James, but that's basically what happened. He's basically done with his message. You killed him. But he's the one that we've been waiting on. They are so moved by what they heard. The Bible says now when they heard this, they were pricked in their hearts. They were cut to the heart. And they said unto Peter and to the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? (laughs) Peter is about to embark on either the greatest revelation... Or he's about to do the exact opposite of what Jesus said. Those are our two extremes. He's been asked, what must we do to be saved? If this is the God of the Old Testament that we've been waiting for, if this is the Messiah that we've been waiting for, then how are we going to be saved? Now remember, Peter is with the eleven who have all been with Jesus in John 3 when Jesus said, if you're going to be born again, or if you're going to see the kingdom of God, you've got to be born again. 
Well, how can a man be born, Nicodemus would ask? Of water and of spirit. Jesus has already heard that. Jesus has also heard what Matthew said. What Matthew records of Jesus. Peter is also there when Jesus says, Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. Teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you, and I'm with you always. He's heard all of that. Now standing with his comrades, standing with his fellow apostles, he says, you want to know? Repent. And be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. And ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. We have the new birth formula in Acts chapter 2. You got to repent. You need to be baptized in Jesus' name. And you need to receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. Very quickly, let me break this down. Repent literally means to have a change of heart, mind, and direction. It says, I realize I'm a sinner. I'm sorry that I'm a sinner. you got to have uh, the, the, the contrition or the realization that you're a sinner. And you got to feel sorry for it. You have to make a decision to forsake sin. And you turn around and stop doing it. And you walk according to His principles. That's repentance. Repentance is not just confession. Confession is part of it. But it's not just confession. It's a revelation. Hey, I'm a sinner. I made a mistake. I've done wrong. I'm sorry I'm done wrong. Now God, I'm going to live for you and surrender. That's repentance. You know what it also is? It's death. It's saying, I'm crucifying the flesh. Paul said, Galatians 5, I crucify the flesh with the affections and lust. The next part is baptism in Jesus' name. I'm not trying to be ugly, but you've got to be baptized in Jesus' name. If you're not baptized in Jesus' name, you're not buried right. Why? Because neither is there salvation in any other. For there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. We must be baptized in the name of Jesus. Amen. That's exactly what Jesus said in Matthew 28, 19. He said, baptize them in the name of the Father, the name of the Son, and the name of the Holy Ghost. Y'all ready for this? Jesus is the name of the Son. She shall bring forth the Son. Matthew 1, 21. Thou shalt call His name Jesus, for He shall save His people from their sins. Everybody in agreement so far? What's the name of the Father? Well, I'm glad you asked. John 5.43 says, I am come in my... Jesus is talking. I am come in my Father's name. The name of Jesus. The name of Jesus. If that's not good enough, or you go to Isaiah chapter 12, Isaiah wrote, Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid. For the Lord Jehovah is my strength and my song. He also has become my salvation. It literally translates, Behold, God is salvation. Or God is Yahshua, which is the Hebrew form of the Greek word, Jesus. Everybody with me so far? So the name of the Father is Jesus. The name of the Son is Jesus. Guess what? The name of the Holy Ghost is. John 14 says, But the Comforter, whom the Father will send in my name, he shall teach you all things and bring all things to your remembrance, whatsoever I've said unto you. Ladies and gentlemen, the name of the Father, the name of the Son, the name of the Holy Ghost, the name is Jesus. For in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. The image of the invisible God, Colossians 1. The firstborn of every creature. And we, Colossians 2.10, are complete in Him. How can you think that if you're not baptized in His name, you're complete? You're not complete. we got to be complete in Him. Which is the head of all principality and power. Do you get, catch it? The reality is what Paul is saying in Colossians chapter 2, verse 10, is that if you want dominion 
over the enemy, you need to bear his name. We're complete in that name. He's head of all principality and power. I want to be a part of the name. And then you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. The gift of the Holy Ghost. The gift of the Holy Ghost. You can't earn it. You and I don't deserve it. It's a gift. It's the Spirit of God. The Holy Ghost, that's King James Version for the Spirit of God infilling you. The Spirit of God comes on us and we know it. Why? Well, we've already discovered that. Acts chapter 2 verses 1 through 4. They spake with other tongues. If none of this makes sense or if you're thinking, he's going to have to show me more, come back next week because there's more. We ain't got to Acts 8 or Acts 10 or Acts 19. We had not got there yet. But if you'll keep studying the book of Acts, you'll find that this is the biblical formula that they use all through Scripture. Oh, and by the way, historically, we also know it's the biblical formula they used the first three centuries. It's not until the Council of Nicaea in 431 AD or something like that. I may be off on the date that they decided, you know what? Maybe this name of Jesus thing is a little bit too wrong. Maybe, maybe, just maybe we should change it and be more acceptable. But historians, in fact, the Catholic Encyclopedia tells us that the first century church, the first, second, and third century church is baptized in this formula. Amen. Amen. Now get this. 39. I'm almost done. I promise. For the promise is unto you. Everybody say, that's me. And to your children. And to all that are afar off, even as many as the Lord our God shall call. Remember, it's about reconciliation. Acts 2 is about reconciliation with God. He said, if you don't worry about how bad you've been or what you've done, I'll take care of that. The promise is unto you. It's forever. For everybody. It's everybody's promise. Amen. And with many other words, did he testify and exhort saying, save yourselves from this underworld generation. He says, you've heard me preach. This is what you need to do. It's time for you to save yourselves. That's very important. That doesn't mean you got to do whatever you got to do to be, or you, you can do just anything to be saved. That means that you got to act. That's exactly what Mark 16 says. Jesus said, He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. He that believeth not shall be damned. The understanding here is that if you believe, you act. You are obedient because you have obedient faith. Confession's not what's being talked about here, it's an action to that belief. Everybody say amen. Bible says, then they that gladly received his word were baptized. And the same day they were added unto the church, unto them about 3,000 souls. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship. And in breaking of bread and in prayers. They were unified. They continued in the word of God. They continued in fellowship. And notice what took place. Fear came upon every soul. And many wonders and signs were done by the apostles. I want miracles. I want signs and wonders. I want to see it happen. Amen? But before you can get to miracles and acts, you got to get to the Holy Ghost. In other words, I don't care how talented I may think I am or how, how talented you may think you are. The reality is, without the Holy Ghost, we can't do anything. We need the Spirit of God. And all that believed were together and had all things common and sold their possessions and goods and parted them to all men as every man had need. And they continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house to eat their meat with gladness and singleness of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved. Do you hear it? That right there is the church. The church were unified in their mission. They were unified by His Spirit. They were together. They began to have all things common. They begin to help one another. 
They begin to pray with one another and for one another. They broke bread together. They fellowshiped together. They had church together. Then the key word of Acts chapter 2 is that they were together. And when they got together full of the Holy Ghost, God said, I'll work. Calvary, listen to me. If we truly want revival, and I do believe we do. If we truly want to see miracle signs and wonders, and I'm convinced that we do. If we want to see our backsliders come back and our lost children come to God. If we want to see God to work in our situations in our world. The first step is to get full of His Spirit. And get connected with the church. That's not membership, folks. I don't want you to think. I'm not talking about legal membership. I'm talking about finding a brother or a sister and say, hey, we're going to make it together. We're in this together. We're going to make it together. And God says, you know what? If the church is, if my body is working together, if they're filled with my spirit, then I will multiply the body. We're just in Acts chapter 2 and we've already seen what the church has to do. We've already seen what's expected of us. We are the body of Jesus Christ. We are the physical body of God today. We are the representation here on this earth. uh, And He is going to work through us. But we've got to be full of His Spirit and with our brothers and sisters. I don't know about you, but I want to be apostolic. I want to be a part of the book of Acts 2.0. I want to see God do it in the 21st century. Amen. Why don't we stand all over this building? Let's lift our hands and thank God for His Word. Can you celebrate the the fact that you've gotten the Holy Ghost? You've been filled with the Spirit.